life-changing joy. Shalom! Thank you for joining us for the Sermon of the Third Sunday of Easter, April 18th, 2021, from Christchurch, Jerusalem. There is a debate of where specifically the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus took place. For some, faith seems diminished by not being able to pinpoint the exact locations. However, Rev. David Pelegi reminds us that our confidence in the resurrection does not lie in identifying the place. The proof is found in the countless lives transformed over 2,000 years by the joy of knowing the risen Jesus. We begin with a reading from Acts 3, 12 through 19. When Peter saw this, the lame man who uh, stood and walked, he said to the people, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who's been appointed for you, even Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading is from 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. The Incarnation of the Word of Life. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Light and darkness, sin and forgiveness. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. This is the word of the Lord. Our third reading is from the book of Luke. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. 
Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We pray that uh, and ask our Heavenly Father as children who need guidance and direction and instruction. Father, we pray that you will uh, send your spirit to be our teacher and that you will lead us into the way of life, eternal life, and that we may have a share in the life that you have with your son and that the son has with you. We pray that um, you will Give us that vision and that understanding and enable us as to participate or to live in that divine life as we listen to your word and we obey what you've asked us to do. Again, in the mighty name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. Think um, if you've been around Um, Jerusalem for a long time, or even if you're just a tourist, you know the, you should be aware of the um, old debate that uh, happens, and that debate is, where was the place? Yes, that Jesus was executed, and where did he rise from the dead? And of course, your answer depends quite a bit on your um, culture, and it depends on your version or your brand of Christianity. And some people, many people, they uh, prefer or like the garden tomb, and other, uh, they certainly appreciate its simplicity. Uh, they see it as a, um, as a visual aid that enables them to imagine 
uh, what the um, crucifixion, how it took place, and what the burial looked like. Of course, we all know that there are some uh, difficult archaeological problems at that point of view. And other people, yes, prefer or gravitate towards the Holy Sepulchre. And so it can be confusing or disturbing. And uh, over the years I've met, sorry, I've met a lot of people who somehow their faith or their belief in the resurrection is, uh, you might say, diminished if we somehow can't pinpoint with accuracy where did this event happen. Yes. And it's not something to be taken lightly because place and geography is quite important and uh, actually even very significant uh, throughout the scripture. And oftentimes uh, the geography uh, of, uh, of the uh, biblical narrative or the geography of one story or the other can tell us as much theologically as the narrative can itself. So God uses place, he uses geography uh, as a way to reveal himself and uh, to reveal his message to the world. But I would like to suggest that the proof of the resurrection or our confidence in the resurrection of Jesus is not or cannot be determined by us 100% totally identifying where, uh, the place where it happened. Yes. For me, the proof of the resurrection is simply this, that a risen Jesus has been changing in the most radical way people's lives for the last 2,000 years. Yes. That when people encounter the Lord... We change, or at least we have the potential to change should we decide uh, to cooperate uh, with the risen Jesus and the Holy Spirit that he sends to live in us. And that uh, transformation um, is seen not only in the lives of people today, but it's something that happened from the beginning. And we all know the story, and we've all heard the sermons, how the disciples being fearful, how the disciples locking themselves up uh, in this so-called upper room, the disciples um, virtually in every post-resurrection account Yes, Jesus meets people who are going the wrong way. Yes, often uh, in disobedience or confusion or distress. And yet, within a short period of time, 50 days, those who were fearful for their own lives those who were in distress, those who were confused, 
Yes, there is this radical change. How does that change happen? And what does it mean for us? And we'll come back to something that we've been saying throughout the Easter season. Yes, that we oftentimes don't have a difficulty with the resurrection as a past event. And sometimes we can think of it or hope that it's going to be a future event, especially at funerals. We take out the doctrine of the resurrection and remember its importance. But my um, concern is that oftentimes in the life of the church and the life of the community of God's people, the resurrection isn't a daily reality. It is a doctrine, and many of us say, yes, we believe it, or met over the years many Christians who confess with their lips, it's true, yet still live in a fear of death. And so we hope it's going to happen, or at least some of us hope it's going to happen. But it doesn't necessarily have much to do with us um, today. And uh, I'd like to look at the passage in Luke 24, just to, as we say, to pick through it and to ask, yes, what do we learn from this passage that is relevant for us today. And it goes very nicely. It's, goes in a, a, it complements in a very beautiful way John chapter 20. And John 20 is what we read last week. That was, again, uh, an encounter in the upper room. And in that encounter, you may remember that Thomas said, I'm not going to believe it until you know, I see his wounds and put my finger in his side. And so John 20 and the Luke, the Lucan passage here uh, are very complementary. There's some um, interesting um, relationship between John's gospel and Luke's gospel, which if we had a lot of time, we could actually explore the connection, uh, but we don't. And so I'd like to... Um, begin with uh, asking the question, what is it that's relevant for us in both of these and both of these passages? Both yes are the both are the written testimonies yes, of a community, an apostolic community of men and women that met the Lord that saw the Lord. And in part, our faith, what we believe and what we hope is based on their witness and based on their testimony. And uh, they, uh, this testimony, of course, is given in the Gospels and throughout the book of Acts and in other parts of the, uh, of the New Testament. They want to assure us, yes, that they saw Jesus, they touched Jesus, they heard Jesus. Yes, in a number of occasions, they ate with Jesus. It wasn't a ghost that they saw. Yet at the same time, the body of Jesus was um, 
like our body and yet still had his wounds, but still glorified nonetheless. And so that's the testimony. The question is, you know, is that good enough for us? Or is there something more? And I think in both accounts, yes, they suggest to us how that we, 2,000 years later, can encounter the risen Jesus. Right? So it's not simply their testimony that we accept, but it's their testimony, yes, that is, uh, that we, um, or it's our experience that we build on their testimony. And so first, I'd just like to turn to John 20. John 20 is... Here the word becomes flesh. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the gospel ends with the confession of Thomas, my Lord and my God. Yes, that's the way the gospel ends. Chapter 21 which Jesus goes fishing and meets Peter, that def- that's, was definitely added. Yes, it wasn't supposed to be the end of the gospel, although I'm glad it's there because it's one of the most beautiful stories in the New Testament. But the gospel really ends uh, uh, on, this, on these verses. Um, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, which is probably the, you might say, the highest, yes, confession of Jesus uh, found in any of the Gospels. Then Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written... Yes, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I'm not sh- I don't sh- um, quite remember the term for this, but I think it's breaking the third wall, isn't it? When, when someone in a play or a movie turns to the audience and starts speaking to the audience, right? and it's always a shock, like, and it doesn't quite feel right. Well, the beloved disciple or the evangelist, depending on who compiled this gospel, now turns to us after telling us this story and saying to us, we can have life. Yes, we can have life because of what they've seen and heard and because of their testimony. And if you don't believe us, then believe, right? If you don't believe us, enter into a relationship with Jesus that is based on trust, because that's what the word belief means, pistis. And in John's gospel, it's always a verb. It's never a noun. Or... It's abiding, or it's clinging. A very good argument can be made when studying the word belief 
in the Gospels and in the Epistles of John, or the Gospel of John and the, and the Epistles, that it also means obedience. And by doing these things, by entering into that relationship, a faith relationship, yes, we can have life. And for John, what is life? Life is always not biological life, but it's divine life, right? It's the life that the Father shares with the Son, and the Son shares with the Father. And Jesus invites us into the midst of that relationship. And of course, we enter that relationship, you know, through the Holy Spirit. Maybe another word, even a better word, a more modern term that I like very much is attachment, right? It's attaching ourselves uh, to Jesus, and that brings life. So for John here, it's not just a historical uh, event, and it's not maybe something that will happen to us in the future, but again, it's a present reality. And Luke 24 does the same. We started uh, the reading before the two disciples went charging out of Jerusalem down to Mozza. Actually, it says in the, in the New Testament, Emmaus. But uh, I think all of us know, do we not, Abiel? Yes, that um, Emmaus is uh, today Mozza, uh, or the spring of Mozza. And for those of you who aren't quite fam- uh, so familiar with your uh, geography uh, around Jerusalem, when you travel from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv and you go over the, that uh, very large high bridge, high by local standards, yes, under that bridge is the spring of Mozza. And very likely, most likely, that is a biblical Emmaus. And so two disciples of Jesus, yes, on Resurrection Day, are in distress and they're in confusion Maybe it's even more than distress. It might be shock. Uh, And there's huge disappointment. Um, Maybe even they are in mourning of of some some kind or another. And uh, Jesus uh, encounters them on the road. And he uh, begins to talk to them. And again, it's in this encounter and what follows in the upper room that I believe prefigures, like John's gospel, yes, what the Christian life should be today. And in some of the ways in which we encounter, experience, yes, the risen Jesus, making the resurrection, again, something of a present reality for us. So first of all, I would, may I suggest that um, there are many, uh, op- not opportunities, there are many uh, instances in lives, and in, in, sorry, in our lives, in which we have uh, encountered the Lord, perhaps in a mystical or supernatural way. Um, again, it's often in trouble. It's often in disappointment. Uh, it's often uh, in the midst of failure. And what I like about the story, in fact, what I like about all the post-resurrection stories, is that Jesus 
um, he meets people, to, sorry to use the cliche, he meets people where they're at, yes? And he ministers to them or he reveals himself in a way to them that meets their need. So people are treated as individuals. And so Jesus reveals there is this revelation. And there's something supernatural about the revelation. Something supernatural about the encounter that Jesus has uh, with these two disciples. Just as there's something supernatural that happens to Thomas, right? The appearance of Jesus coming into the room. And so we encounter the Lord, yes, when he reveals himself to us. And probably everyone in this room has a different story of the way that uh, they have met the Lord or the way that uh, they um, had Jesus come to them. It's not always in trouble or difficulty or in failure or disaster, but it's often the case. And so um, there is this divine, you might say, supernatural, under, uh, supernatural element. And I don't want to dismiss that or minimize it. But also we read that Jesus sits with them, or Jesus, sorry, be on the way, he begins to explain the scripture to them. And uh, this happens twice, once on the road to Emmaus and once in the upper room. And when uh, Jesus uh, meets his disciples in the upper room, it's a, it's a quite, a, uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting revelation in that he says that, he, or the text tells us that he is going to explain, uh, he is going to explain um, how everything must be fulfilled that is written about me, he said, in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now, I think everybody here, maybe many of those who are joining us from abroad, know, or at least we should know, that the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, then and now, is divided into three parts. Yes, we have the, the law of Moses or the, or the Torah, the Humash, the first five books. We have the prophets and everything else that doesn't uh, fall into the major and minor prophets, uh, the historical books, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Song of Solomon and more. These are called the writings or sometimes just called the Psalms. And so Jesus wants to explain to his disciples how all of Scripture, yes, testifies about him. Not just one verse here or some odd interpretation of a verse there, right? But all of Scripture is pointing to him. And this understanding that we uh, recite in the creed, if some of you know the creed, that he died, he, he di- he was uh, crucified under Pontius Pilate, was, um, died and was buried according to the scriptures. Died, was buried, and rose again, sorry, according to the scriptures. That this understanding of how prophecy is fulfilled, I have no doubt, comes from Jesus himself. This is what Jesus taught his early disciples. 
And this is his, <coughs> his understanding of the text and his understanding of the scripture. And so when he opens the scripture, or in, the, in both cases, it's a revelation to them. And surely, when we open the Bible, yes, do we have the same expectation that we're going to encounter, yes, the risen Jesus in the text? Or is it, oh, I have to read the Bible, and I really don't want to, but, or I know I should read it more often, but they do read it. They do read three passages a week there at Christ Church, and maybe that's enough. Right, that uh, we encountered the Lord, yes, in the scripture. Secondly, in Luke's gospel, we encounter the Lord, do we not, at the table. Yes, at the breaking of bread. I'm not sure whether in both cases what's being described is a Eucharist. But I think the principle is clear, uh, especially uh, because what happens in the upper room uh, sounds very familiar. Yes, about taking bread, blessing it, and giving it. It sounds very familiar to what happened at the Last Supper or the, the Passover meal that Jesus ate with his disciples just before his death. But it is in part, yes, not in part, it is the place where we encounter the risen Jesus. It is the place where um, he is revealed to us. That's why we read in our communion liturgy, at least in this in this particular liturgy, and I like it very much, when we begin the communion prayer. It begins with, be present, be present, Lord Jesus. Make yourself known in the breaking of bread. Yes, this is, uh, echoes what happens on the road to Emmaus, and of course in the upper room. So, So we have, again, the opportunity, yes, if, and if we have the expectation and the desire, yes, when we read the scripture, when we come to the Lord's table, yes, of meeting him. By the way, you can also um, think in terms of uh, uh, hospitality, you know, when Jesus sat and had bread with two strangers, and it was also, and that was also part of the revelation. And uh, it is true, is it not, that uh, this echoes what we read in Matthew 25, that we are often, we will also encounter the Lord and those who are homeless, those who are oppressed, those who are without food, those who were without clothing, those who are in prison. That's, the, that's another place where we indeed encounter the risen Jesus. But what tra- these disciples, these early followers of Jesus, um, what becomes, I believe, essential in their change 
what makes them different men and women within a short period of 50 days, willing to risk their lives and willing to sacrifice everything, is that their fear and their disappointment and their confusion has all turned to joy, right? That uh, joy becomes this overwhelming, dominant response, yes, to encountering this risen Jesus. Now, certainly, if you want to think about the book of Luke, Luke's a book. It has more mentions of joy than any book in the Bible, Um, and certainly more than any gospel, although John, the gospel of John has its fair share. You know, Mark, my least favorite gospel, only mentions the word once. You know, I rest my case about Mark. And so the book, Luke's, Luke's gospel, begins where? It begins in the temple. And in the temple... Uh, with the birth of John the Baptist, is there not a great deal of joy and wonder and amazement? Uh, And then we continue with Mary and Elizabeth. And we have, of course, the angels singing for joy at the birth of Jesus. And uh, it's interesting in the book of Luke, wherever there is a revelation or understanding of who Jesus really is, we have the response being one of joy. The disciples, after being sent out, yes, to preach uh, the kingdom of the kingdom of heaven, they come back, and it says they're full of joy. Why? Because even the demons submit to them. Yes. They submit to them because the demons can be cast out in the name of Jesus. And here, at the resurrection, right, there is this return, right, after the sadness of, um, of the crucifixion. There is this, um, this return to joy. Now, what makes, I believe, what makes joy so powerful and what makes it so life-changing because we don't necessarily think of joy as something that uh, changes lives. But uh, in actuality, it does. And when people have an attachment, a joyful attachment to something or to someone, yes, and in that joy they have this, um, this understanding that they belong to that something, they belong to that someone, that what happens is that the joy itself and the joy in that relationship, because here I'm talking about a relational joy, not some kind of happy, clappy, um, you know, everything's going to be all right type of a joy, you know, I'm optimistic and I always walk on the sunny side of the street and it's all going to be, it's all going to be fine. It's all going to be great. Right? But the joy, yes, is found uh, in the relationship. And that joy, a joy in a relationship is as strong 
perhaps if not stronger, yes, than the things that we believe. See, very oftentimes we have an understanding of discipleship and following Jesus by telling people, you know, just put more of the Bible into your life. Just meditate more on Scripture. Just attend more prayer meetings. Just, you know, come to services. Go to the soup kitchen and help the poor. And I, mean, I don't, wouldn't demean those things in the slightest. But they have their limitations. Yes. They have their limitations. And equally powerful, right, is having, a, having an attachment to someone. Right? An attachment to your family. What does that attachment do? If you love your family, or you love your nation, or you have an attachment to your ideology or your political cause, what it, it produces loyalty. It produces commitment. It produces faithfulness. Yes, people are willing to die and to sacrifice and to amend their behavior. Right? Because they belong. I don't know how many times I've heard Muslims or Jews say, uh, usually in passing, I'm not trying, you know, oh, I, I believe in Jesus and I think he's the Messiah, but I could never leave my family. I could never leave my community. You know, I could never leave, you know, the uh, Ramadan and, uh, and, and uh, the, the Eid. You know, Adha, Fidr, you know, that's just like too, too important for me, right? Because there's that attachment that is as great, yes, as what we believe intellectually. And so here we have disciples who are full of joy, and they've attached themselves to the Lord and taken together, taken together, with the witness of this of the risen Jesus becomes something that's very, very powerful. Right? Again, it's not just a theology. It is, it's not just the witness. And it and the witness of the, the early church, even the experiences that we have personally with the Lord, all of those are important. Right? But in large part, what's going to motivate them. Yes, and what's going to motivate them in their obedience is joy. And this joy, by the way, uh, ends the gospel of Luke. I mean, I cannot think of a better way to end the gospel, any gospel, than to what we read at the, uh, the end, uh, where it says they're led out to the vicinity of Bethany. Uh, Jesus lifts up his wounded hands and blesses them which I think is significant in and of itself, that he blesses from his wounds, yes? And then while he was taken up into, okay, while he was taken up into heaven, then they worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they stayed continually in the temple praising God. Yes? So their worship, yes, is motivated by joy, or that worship is filled with joy. It's not some 
something obligatory that they have to do, right? So, um, someone once said that the, the joy that uh, we read about in these passages, as I mentioned earlier, should be, understand, should be understood as a relational joy, not as, again, some kind of sunny optimism that ignores reality. And a relational joy is, is described or is understood as um, finding what's delightful in the other person. And that forms the attachment, right? What is it that, is, what is it that, the, that we find delightful in the Lord? What is it that the Lord himself, Jesus, finds delightful in us? Yes. By the way, this joy is not just an attachment between Jesus and me. It's an attachment between Jesus and us. And that attachment and that uh, delight is not, uh, again, uh, it is something that extends to the fellowship or to the koinonia or to the family of God. And that was the, the purpose of reading 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, 1 John is written, yes, um, to warn the community. 1 John is written to clarify m- the misunderstandings or you might say um, problems uh, in the community uh, because people, because uh, the believers there are misinterpreting John's gospel, right? So the epistles of John have to be written. But this is what he says. He says that um, the, the author, the, the elder, he says, from the beginning, again, this is what we've heard. This is what we've seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. Yes, this is what we proclaim concerning the word of life. Um, and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life with which the Father has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and what we have seen and heard, and so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Yes, there's broken fellowship in this community. A number of people have gone out and they no longer walk in the light and they no longer do the truth. Some of them are saying, you know, uh, most likely they're saying, well, the only commandment we, we know is to love, you know, is to love each other. But, you know, Jesus didn't say anything about uh, generosity or forgiveness or reconciliation or faithfulness in marriage. So obviously those things aren't important. And so 1 John writes to uh, correct a number of those, uh, a number of those uh, uh, mistaken understandings, yes, when reading John's gospel. But the writer of 1 John says, I want to, to make sure that we have fellowship with one another so that we can have joy Right, so that uh, we can be attached, and that attachment again uh, leads to delight. 
Now, the challenge of finding joy, not just in the Lord, but in each other, is indeed a serious challenge, right? And we have to ask the question, what is it about the other person in which I can find delight? What is it about the other person in which, uh, what is it that I can appreciate? What is it that I see that's godly in them? More often than not, it's like, oh, here comes so-and-so, and I can't stand so-and-so, <laughs> you know, and they drive me crazy, and they bring out the worst in me. But you see, and that's why it's so easy for there to be disloyalty in the community, right? Because the attachment that we have with each other is oftentimes weak. And oftentimes we have, uh, we have Christian disciples with low joy, right? They don't find uh, joy in the relationship with the Lord, or they, do, they don't experience the fruit of the Spirit, which is peace and joy, right? And they live in weak communities. And those oftentimes isolated. And uh, this often produces a failure of discipleship. And when we have a failure of discipleship, we don't have transformed lives. Right? We don't have lives that are radically changed. And the presence and the reality of the risen Jesus is missing. And I think it's in part... In part, it can be rectified. Oh, praise the Lord. We can eat now. There's the Ramadan canon. <laughs> I just said that for the, for the eight or nine folks who are listening to us on the internet. I didn't want them to think a war was starting here in Jerusalem. No, but when, we, when there is low joy, right, and isolation and weak communal attachments, there's a failure of discipleship, which leads to a bad witness, <clears throat> does it not? And people look at us and they say, oh, wait a minute, how can Jesus be risen from the dead if this is the way you live? And by the way, just to close, when Jesus says, you're my witnesses, whether it's in this chapter 24 or in its Acts chapter 1, It's all written in Greek, but I'd like to remind you, these are Jews who think in Hebrew, even if they do write in Greek. The word for witness in Hebrew is not only to give testimony, but the word is edah, and edah means a community. And then when Jesus says, you are my witnesses, it's not simply that... uh, Two of us, some of us, have to go out and hand out Bibles or pamphlets or stand on street corners, although that may be appropriate in some places and sometimes. But what Jesus is reminding us of, again in a very kind of Hebraic fashion, is that we, the community, the family, we are that witness. And we're the witness of, you know, of, the, of the resurrection of Jesus It's more than just apologetics, talking about the empty tomb, as important as the empty tomb may be. Yes, 
It's not, it's the empty tomb, tomb. And like those early disciples, have we encountered the risen Jesus? Is he present in our lives like he was present in the lives of those in the upper room and more? Is he transforming our lives and changing us as, as he did 2,000 years ago? That's our challenge. And that's a question that all of us, I think, need to ask ourselves. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.